This is a paid advertisement. Attention metrics are part of the zeitgeist, and for good reason. The industry needs a better quality measure than viewability. According to the IAB, 90% of advertisers plan to use attention metrics this year, so there's a good chance they're on your radar. If you're part of this forward-thinking majority, it's time to familiarize yourself with the Adelaide's AU. Endorsed by Adweek as the attention economy's most widely recognized metric, AU is available in nearly every DSP, SSP, and ad network. Learn more at adelaidemetrics.com. That's adelaidemetrics.com. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Papero. I'm joined by Eric Franchi. And our special guest today is Alan Wolk, the co-founder of TV Rev, one of the leading publications uh, about the TV business. And this is really going to be our TV episode, so I'm pretty excited to get into it. Alan, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure, man. My pleasure. Glad to be here. I usually do a quick promo. Um, I'll just give a quick story here, which is I got texted by some fellow I didn't know, junior employee at LiveRamp, who got my phone number off of LinkedIn. For those of you who don't know, I put my phone number on LinkedIn. So he texted me. Some He didn't think it was me. He thought it was a bot. Turned out it was me. And he talked about how much he loved the podcast. And I said, well, do you pay for architecture TV to get the good stuff? And he's like, oh, you know, I don't know. And then five minutes later, he came through and paid. So I want to thank that subscriber. I won't name him to embarrass him. But also let you know that entry-level employees at ad tech companies, there's no better way to improve your career than spending the 40 bucks or whatever it is a month and getting an architecture TV subscription. All right. I'm done with my self, uh, <laughs> my self promo. So, Alan, tell us what what is TV Rev? So, TV Rev is a a multi headed beast. TV Rev is a website um, that creates articles that we have articles, run articles about the television industry. Basically, it really focuses on that intersection between where streaming and advertising intersect. We have a newsletter that goes out three times a week. It hits about sixty thousand people at this point. That's six zero. And I had looked at it the other day. I was like, wow, we got more subscribers. And we also do special reports on breaking topics. We have one that's coming out next month on local television and streaming, how local broadcasters are dealing with it. We have a two-part series, one of which I did with Mike Shields, which is on the Fast ecosystem and how that works with advertising. And that's all free thanks to our sponsors. So you can just get that off the website, which is tvrev.com. So what's going on in the TV business? It's quiet, right? Yeah, very quiet. Nothing's been happening. Just, just really nothing. Uh, but what are the to- hottest topics? What's what are keeping your subscribers interested? I mean, the biggest thing right now is obviously is the strike is the and the impact that that's going to have on everything. And it's actually two strikes at this point. You've got the say the actor strike, SAG AFTRA, and you've got the WGA, the writer strike, and that shut down production. And that's you know, there's a lot of worries about so many things about how they're not going to have enough content going forward about, you know, is that going to really kill off linear? Is it going to kill off streaming? Um, And where does AI fit into all this too? Because there's all these fears about AI writing scripts. There's been something going around now that, you know, they wrote a script for Seinfeld and for South Park and, oh oh my God, it's going to take everything over. So everything's going to crap. And then on the ad side, there's still all sorts of worries about how are we going to measure all this? What do we do with all the data and all that good stuff? So well, let's take this one at a time. So on the strike, uh, you said maybe it'll kill linear. How how does that play out? So already 
you know, Disney, ABC, Bob Iger has been making noise about selling off regular ABC, you know, AB, the ABC television network. Right. And if that happens, there's all these affiliates and like, what happens to us and what happens to their O&Os and all that, their owned and operated stations are the O&O. And how does that, you know, how does that all play out? So on a very macro level, the big problem with TV as it moves to streaming is something called carriage and retrans fees or the lack thereof. So what are carriage and retrans fees? They are the money that the MVPDs, what normal people call cable companies, pay to the cable networks, which is carriage fees, and to the broadcast networks, which is called retrans fees. And that's been going on since 1992. And that is literally $10 billion and up of money that basically consumers pay because the MVPDs just pass those charges on to their, you know, their customers. But that's $10 billion a year that goes in. And it's created this almost sort of lottery winner type you know, atmosphere at the various networks where it's, you know, salaries have gone way up. You want to spend $10 million to make an episode of Game of Thrones? Great, go, it's, you know, serve caviar. It's really sort of thrown the whole thing out of whack. And what happens is as you move to streaming, there's nobody to pay those fees, right? You can't, you know, who is Netflix going to charge? Roku? And so without that money, it becomes a less profitable business. Now, no, I did not say unprofitable because in every other country in the world, you have a television industry that manages to survive and thrive without carriage and retrans fees. It's just there's not the money coming in that they're used to. So an easy example of how that plays out is what happened with Warner Brothers Discovery and CNN Plus, where the new management came in there and said, yeah, you know what, like, not a bad idea, but we make a lot of money from CNN off of carriage fees. All the MVPDs believe that sports and news are sort of the two things that are keeping people subscribing. We want to keep milking that as long as possible. So we're not going to do a streaming CNN right yet, you know maybe five years, 10 years down the road, we'll do something like that. But right now, we need to keep this money coming in. And that's sort of the heart of, the, of what's going on with the writers and the actors, because they see you know, streaming has come in, it's sort of disrupted everything, but they're not making as much money as they used to. So they used to work, you know, you had these 25 episode seasons, right? And that's about as close as you could get to a full-time job in Hollywood. You work, you know, from September to June, you have the summer off. Now it's like, well, it's eight episodes here, eight episodes there. It becomes very much like gig work. And if you ask the networks, they're like, well, well, there's just too many writers. There's too many actors. We need to sort of shrink so we can pay everybody. And that's really kind of the, the crux of what's going down there now. Quick clarification. So retrans fees still exist with AVOD. Like if you're YouTube TV, your YouTube TV is paying retrans fees. Yes, but it's funny. There was just just I was just writing about this today. YouTube TV. So YouTube TV is actually there's a, a strong argument that YouTube TV and Hulu Live TV are just basically MVPDs with a different delivery system, right? They're not the equivalent of Netflix. And when they started up, they needed the local broadcasters and realized, oh my God, we're gonna have to make you wouldn't have to cut individual deals with you know all thousand of them. So what happened was the networks stepped in and said, we'll cut the deals for you with all of our affiliates and everybody will be on board. And now that they constitute about a third of the, you know, the pay TV universe, just this week, a bunch of the local TV groups, some you know, Sinclair, 
and you know, Nexstar and all those guys, Tegna came together and they're like, we want to negotiate individually. We want to get, because we're pretty valuable to these guys. They've got millions of subscribers. We want to get our money in. And they're calling us to think about local news initiative, but it's really about getting their retrans fees. Let's say the, the strikes go on for some time. Um, yeah, I'd say it's an all summer thing, goes into the fall right. um, or even longer. What, what are the short and long-term impacts? So short term is that there's not a lot of new shows, you know, for next year. So for the- I feel awesome 24. No, for 23 even, because they've already started. Yeah, they, 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 you know, they, they, they run a pretty tight production schedule. So they would have- 23. Right. So fall 23, we, we don't see a lot of new network TV shows. Um, the streaming, so, you know, some of, it'll hit some of them more than others. So Netflix, funny enough, is in a very good position. Because Netflix is in every country in the world except for China, North Korea, and Syria. So they've got all this, and they have found that a lot of foreign series resonate. I mean, you know, things like this Israeli series called Shtisel, Wid Games, this is South Korea, Call Your Agent from France. You know, they've done well with it. So they can just go, yeah, give us, you know, everybody outside the U.S., give us your shows. Uh, we'll run them here. Um, and we've learned now that AI can do a really good job dubbing stuff for people who don't want to read subtitles. And so you got that. You know, the broadcast networks, the CBS, NBC, ABC, they're, you know, they're not going to have a lot because they run really, like I said, they run a really tight, you know, close to when the show is being released, is being filmed and written. So they're going to have to do a lot of, you know, reality shows and reruns and things like that. And now is why people are wondering, like, is that just going to, you know, kill off linear or, or increase the speed in which it, people just sort of cut the quarters of the end? There's nothing new on here. Why am I doing this? And I can watch streaming. And there's a whole lot of stuff on streaming I haven't seen yet. Streaming is a glut of content. So yeah, think about, I know for myself, there's probably a half dozen series I've meant to watch. We just haven't had time. And so I think, you know, it's got streaming has a couple of months, has a good six months period where people can sort of like catch up on stuff that they haven't seen. Do you think that that what you said there in terms of this could accelerate cord cutting, do you think that will happen? Yes, I do. I do. I think we're at a point now where people, you know, especially if there's nothing new on primetime. And the other thing that's happening is all of the sports network, the regional sports networks, the ones that show all the Boston Celtics games, all the Lakers games are launching their own streaming apps. And that was something that kept people, you know, tied to cable for a long time. So I think we're going to start seeing an accelerate. And accelerating is is still a small, like in other words, it's a very slow process. So many, so many people thought it was going to be sort of the way the music industry got disrupted, or magazines and newspapers, and you know, they lose. Like it sounds like a big number because we've had so many, so many people subscribe to cable in the U.S. But yeah, you know, somebody loses a million subscribers, that's like half a percent or something. Yeah, you know, a little bit more than that. But it's it's still five percent but eventually you hit a tipping point and then it's you know we think the floor is somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the population that you pretty much will have to pry the remote out of their hands in order to get them to cut the cord it's one topic i i always like to think about it when we talk about retrans because the cable networks are often conglomerates as a result it's very difficult for consumers to choose which channels to pay for like probably everyone listening to this podcast in some way pays for Fox News, even though we find it morally reprehensible. So there's been talk about Congress allowing an a la carte uh, mandate. Uh, is that just dead in the water? Is that ever going to happen or, or are we doomed forever to these bundles? I think we're due to the bundles as long as it lasts. 
I think that that's something that's going to start going away. You know, the, but like they'll hold on to it as long as they can. But there's sort of a sense that, okay, this, this is just fading out. I mean, again, when Iger starts talking about selling off ABC, the network, then it's just like, yeah, everybody's kind of over that. Like we're on to the next thing. So it's just, it's, it's sort of a slow, it'll, you know, it'll sort of be a slow demise. A lot of the cable networks will, smaller cable networks will start to shut down and will be profitable. When the new carriage negotiations come up again, it's like, yeah, nobody watches this. We don't need to take it. And at some point, you know, it's like, who needs who more? Another aspect of this is sports. So the traditional cable bundle and on the broadcast bundle is very dependent on sports viewership. Um, and increasingly, the tech companies are starting to buy some of the rights. Is there a scenario where that accelerates and uh, sports becomes a lot more um, on demand and a lot less part bundled? I think so. I think so. I mean, I think you also have the, you know, you'll have a hybrid for a while because the companies that really own it are, you know, whether it's CBS, NBC, they'll run it on both. They'll be like, okay, we're running on broadcast so that Congress gets off our back. And, you know, because if it's on streaming, somebody has to pay for it. Then if, if you remember, like there was a, like two Yankees games on the Apple TV you know, like the governor of New York got all upset about it. <laughs> it turned out she was wrong that it was free, but like nonetheless, I think just for optics, they'll do it on both, you know, and sort of gradually migrate people over. Yeah, I, I tried to watch the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest on the ESPN app and was disappointed that I needed a cable subscription. But I want to talk specifically about ESPN. Do you know was when um, Iger was uh, speculating about selling off TV, was he including ESPN in that conversation? I think it was a very like, let, let me just throw this stuff out there and see see what happens conversation. ESPN is a tough one because it's it's very popular. So ESPN attracts, and, and this is, you know, there's a lot of gray area in between. ESPN attracts people who are casual sports fans or fans of a particular sport. Like, I like basketball and I'll watch any basketball game right. It's a good matchup versus I subscribe to New England Sports Networks because I'm a Celtics fan, and the only games I want to see are Celtics games. And obviously, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but you know, ESPN, you don't have that sort of diehard mentality that a lot of the you know that the sort of regional sports networks do. Plus, there's a lot of other ways to get sports news and watch sports now. I mean, that's the other piece is that do people always have the time? That said, I think it's a really valuable property. And the question is, do you move that to streaming? Does that become the third leg of whatever Disney has on offer? And I'll tell you why sports are really important, which is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. There's a whole lot of people, and I will include myself in this, who have the ad-free option of every streaming service. And I have an ad blocker on my browser. And you don't get to advertise to me unless I'm watching sports, and, you know. I certainly see, I see a lot of beer commercials and car commercials, but not a whole lot else. But I think that's going to make sports really valuable because they realize there is this, I guess, sizable enough. No one's ever, I've been trying to find study on it, but I would assume it's sizable enough group of consumers who rarely do see, you know, affluent, educated consumers who rarely see ads. And if you want to reach them, sports is going to be a great way. I mean, you look at it like Apple and Amazon don't run ads except on sports. And, you know, don't, don't use an ad blocker, kids. That puts my kids through college. 
But ESPN is the worst case scenario, right? Because they have yeah. incredibly high retrans fees. They're the highest retrans fees out there. It's like seven, eight dollars or something per. Yeah, it's carriage fees because they're carriage. It's carriage fees because they're yeah, yeah. yeah, but yeah, and they have very high costs because they have to buy sports rights. Yeah, so that I mean, I'm sure that's part of Iger's you know math is like we're gonna lose all of this money that we get from retrans fees at you know if we move it over to cable. I mean, we move it over to streaming. Excuse me. But at the same time, like that audience on cable is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So when do we make the move so that we're, we're well positioned? I mean, there's an argument that like whenever you do it, there's still an audience. It's ESPN. It's sort of like CNN. There's an The audience is going to be there. It's not like it's a new product and that they won't go with you. So, but it really depends. You know, the, again, it, it boils down to like without carriage or retrans. It's profitable, just not as wildly profitable as it once was. Right. All right. Let's talk advertising. Let's talk measurement first. What's a JIC and what's going on with the JIC? Well, a JIC is very popular in Europe. There's all sorts of JICs throughout the European continent. It means Joint Industry Council. And basically, what it is, you know, um, David Levy and the team from OpenAP started up, you know, basically looked and said, gosh, like, this is just a, this is still a mess. Like nobody can agree on anything. Why don't we get all the big players who aren't Nielsen together and try and figure out some standards on on everything, like on data, on you know what counts as a view, on measurement, on ID, on privacy, on how to do persons based viewing, which is a huge huge thing issue. And you know, and they all seem to be cooperating at least for now, because that, that's the thing. I mean, you hear from a lot of advertisers that, hey, you know, I'd love to spend more money on streaming. One of the two things that holds me back is that, like, I have no idea how to do an apples-to-apples comparison from one source to the next. Right. But a JIC is different, because we think a lot of our listeners are probably very familiar with the IEB and its standard-setting missions. A JIC is different. A JIC can actually decide a contract Right. Or I'm not sure if they can contract, but they in European countries, the JIC will decide who is going to be used for measurement in the entire country. Um, And pretty much all the advertisers and publishers agree with it. And it becomes sort of a de facto monopoly for the period of the contract. Um, And the advantage being standardization as well as cost control. Whereas in the U.S., Nielsen has a natural monopoly because they're just so big. And they are generally thought of as being too expensive and and unaccountable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is with the current jig is that yeah, you know, all of the potential you know measurement companies are all part of it, so they're not going to just go like, okay, every yeah, we all agree to let iSpot be the guys. Like that's not going to happen. So it's going to be some combination of everybody who belongs to it. Is you know, we're, and there's just so much to figure out. And then you also have the other piece, which is like you know. As the amount of linear viewing fades, you know, even when you have, you know, fast and other things that are linear on streaming, they're much more easily measured than, you know, sort of cable or over the air. But what do you think the output of this JIC will be? Because the U.S. JIC has been very political. Everyone has comments and people are, are refusing or doubling down on it. What, what's going to be the output? I mean, I think they'll come up with a set of stand, you know, basic standards of like, you know, how you handle you know, identity resolution, you know, the, the whole clean room thing, you know, ways to sort of like, so in other words, they'll, they'll take who are the, the members and they'll say, okay, it's cool to use these guys. Like we're going to sort of say, okay, these are, didn't count, I think probably five companies are like, you know, 
They have our seal of approval. If you want to use some combination of them for measurement, this is how we're going to handle some of the other, st- you know, a lot of the other stuff like privacy and whatnot. But, you know, I think that's about it because Nielsen is still out there. And like just this today, I think it was this morning I saw something, you know, they struck a deal with Comcast to expand, you know, Nielsen had that deal with Comcast where they were measuring local broadcasts because there just weren't enough people in smaller markets. There weren't enough people signed up for Nielsen. So they'd have, I changed the channel, like it's in the ratings flying, you know, 10 <laughs> points in any direction. So they started getting Comcast set-top box data. And they, they basically expanded that deal some where they're using more Comcast set-top box data. So they're not, you know, they're, they're yeah. still there. Well, if you pay enough, Comcast yeah. will we'll provide you the data. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, advertising. So the as consumers are moving from, uh, from linear to digital, it, my understanding is that it's caused a lot of problems for uh, the advertising sales of these giant cable companies and both cable companies and uh, broadcasters. And that they're sometimes having to, you know, forecast half and half, deliver on audience and deliver on met on ratings. And uh, the tech isn't always up for it. What are you seeing in this world of advertising sales? So the big, the big thing, which sort of, again, doesn't get talked about a whole lot, is that a lot of the very biggest advertisers, the and I don't know, I'm, I'm going to say Pepsis and AT&Ts, and I haven't talked to either company, but just companies of that size, right? Their attitude is our audience is everybody with a mouth, everybody with an ear. Like, we don't really care about targeting so much. And you all are coming to us and going, yeah, we can target your, you know, your consumers. Like, no, we use TV as a image building reach vehicle. We, we pretty much want everybody. And when we run, when we pay, you know, $5 million for, you know, this 60 second commercial, we want it running against original programming. Right now, most of what's available on streaming is reruns, right? It's other than Hulu, which has a sizable audience and has originals. All the faster, you know, for the most part, are just doing reruns. Their network reruns is premium, but it's still a rerun. And so they're keeping their money on, you know, on prime time for now because they realize, okay, like I get to run it against an original episode of Abbott Elementary. It, you know, I understand this. It, it, you know, it's easy to measure, blah, blah, blah. Now, at some point in the next two years to 10 years, it's, it's hard to know, but Netflix, HBO, Disney, their ad-supported tiers will have a critical mass, and you'll be able to run against original programs on that. And that's the point where I think a lot of these guys are going to go, oh, I get it now. That's the new prime time, faster than new cable. Here's all my money. Take it. But until then, it's going to be this hybrid thing. And it is really tricky to your point, your original point, because they do have to guarantee a lot of the networks are putting in, well, here's our YouTube inventory and here's our streaming inventory. Local broadcasters, there's a whole ecosystem where they partner with the different fast and with Hulu and whatnot to sort of you know, give extended reach. Like you're missing a lot of people in, Char- in the Charlotte area. We can find them. You, know, you have companies like Premion and Gamut finding them on Keo. Here, here they are on, on streaming for you. So you can use that to expand your reach. That's what, yeah. I mean, just to interrupt for one second, that's, uh, that's what Madhive's business was. And they raised yes. that blockbuster $100 million dollar. Yeah, Madhive, and, and full disclosure, Madhive is a, is a we work with Madhive a lot. Sure. Uh, TV Rip. But yeah, they are sort of, the, they kind of help the Premions and Gamets and all those guys 
by making hyper, they can target even within zip codes. They can really, they should so they, they give them a, a leg up and, you know, and sort of provide the platform for all that. But yeah, there's a whole, you know, Cadent is in there too. There's a whole bunch of companies that sort of basically help local broadcasters extend their reach out, uh, you know, beyond just what they're doing. And, you know, and again, it's like, well, measurement is tricky because it's like some of it is, you know, is impression, some of it is GRPs, you know, there's not a lot. So the persons-based thing is also tough. So just to, for anyone who's not familiar with it, streaming is measured by something called ACR data, automated content recognition. Basically, it's sort of like Shazam for the, for the TV. Take a couple of pixels from the television set. They mash it against a database. There's a company called CCR Media in Cedar Rapids that basically is the database for almost everybody. And they, then they figure out what's being watched. But they only know what's being watched on that TV. They don't necessarily know who is in front of it. That's the persons based thing. And that's always been Nielsen's thing. So there's a bunch of companies like T-Vision and Hyphometrics that are trying to get the people-based part of it. That's where a lot of people think Telly is up to. Telly yeah. the free TV company. Would get. Eric, you're an investor in Telly, right? We're an investor in both Telly and T-Vision Insights. We're all over it. You got it covered. The old TV, uh, if for those of you who haven't been in TV, the technology, it's basically like the Dharma Initiative. Like basically everything's got cranks and C CRT scanners and like weird towers in the middle of nowhere that you can't figure out what it does. But uh, new technology is coming, but slowly. Yes. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, nothing in this industry, if you take away anything from this podcast, nothing in television happens quickly. It's all really slow. <laughs> all right. Let's take a quick break and come back and, and talk news. There's a bunch of TV oriented news. So uh, we've got more TV to talk about. Okay, so we talked about actually the two top news stories of the week, which was the strike and Disney potentially selling its TV stations. But let's also talk about Netflix. Netflix had its earnings out, I think, last night, Wednesday night, uh, or Tuesday night, and they did very well. And one of the pieces of information that came out was that they're getting rid of the cheapest ad-free offering. So uh, they have a nine nine they have a nine dollar ninety nine cents per month offering with no ads. And that got removed, implying that they would like to push people either up to a higher tier or down to a six ninety nine ad tier. Is, is, is this a pretty bullish sign for Netflix? Eric, do you want to start there and we'll go to Alan next? I think it's a little early to tell, right? So um, to be clear, they kept the cheapest, cheapest tier. So the cheapest tier is six ninety nine with ads. They got rid of the cheapest ad for right. tier. The CFO made a statement that, you know, they modeled it out and believed that, you know, a minimal subscriber fee plus ads end up being um, a higher yield than $9.99. It's so early. Like the other comment that he made in the in, in the earliest call is that they expect a gradual advertising revenue build and that's not expected to be a big contributor this year. And the ad supported plan has 1.5 million subscribers. So overall, this is small this i think gives um you know nailer and team a bit of you know sort of like headroom and latitude to start figuring this stuff out but one could expect um they've got the various drivers to step on the gas and make this really big once they feel like they understand how this will affect all the all the different tiers but i think it's well, it's bullish that they're doing just the, the the elimination of that one tier i think is pretty bullish um it's just like baby steps yeah, they have a lot of time to figure it out because they're getting $65 CPM from the Microsoft deal. 
a lot of time to figure it out. Alan, what's your take on Netflix and their app? Well, I mean, 1.5 million isn't a whole lot of people, though. That's the thing. No. See, the, the biggest thing with, with Netflix is there's a whole lot of things that they didn't say during that call. So, first off, like, if you, and I'll give Evan Shapiro credit for this. He did the math on it. They missed their projected revenue by 21%. Like, it was a small number. Like, it's, you know, like, it's 0.7% was the actual difference, but it's 21% of where they thought they would be. So, that's the thing. But they didn't say, well, what percentage of people who we think are password sharing did we actually ask to sort of push over it? And then what percentage of the people we asked actually did it? And, and obviously, you know, clearly the, the eliminating the lowest price tier was a way to push people to get the ad-supported tier. What yeah. for IS1? Because a lot of people had previously done the math and said, well, I'll just move down. If you pull my kids off of my $16 a month account, I don't need two streams. I don't need more than one stream at a time. So I'll just go down to the nine ninety nine plan and and we're pretty good. So I think that was part of why they, you know, they took it away. But they all there was also something in there where they were kind of squishy about how they how or if they were enforcing it. Like they it was kind of like, yeah, we'll go back to them and ask them again. So it was unclear how many people that they sort of dinged and said you're sharing accounts just said, Yes, yeah, so what? So, so there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be answered about where they are. They did have some, you know, there was some other good news that Muffet Nathanson came out with something that said, you know, Netflix was, had far more time, basically, they call it engagement. It's basically minutes streamed than anyone else by a lot. But at the same time, they also have way more subscribers than anyone else. So, you know, where does that come out? You know, they're in a weird place. They haven't had a a real big hit in the last year or so, you know, possibly the new season of Black Mirror really was, didn't, you know, make the waves. HBO has been sort of dominating that, that piece as we saw at the Eddies this year. But at the same time, there's an, a, an article in New York Magazine a couple months ago, which was quoting some, some Asian as say, I think it was New York Magazine. Anyway, somebody saying that, you know, Netflix needed to stop making, quote, Snobby shows that no one watches. Yeah, yeah, that was great. And then there was another quote from a writer that was in the New York Magazine. Where he said, yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with two and a half men, but my writers all want to write Barry. And you know who watches Barry? No one. Yeah, that was the quote. Like, I'm, you know, yeah. And, and so there's a lot of, like, in the streaming services trying to figure out, like, how do we go to mass market now? How do we go from being HBO to being a mass market company and hitting all those people who don't get why Barry is funny, you know, who don't want to watch, you know, snobby shows with, you know, like sort of, you know, that sort of HBO like fair. And there's not, you know, there's not a huge, huge market for it. Like, well, there's, don't some folks say that the last strike, writer strike, was the birth of reality TV? They do. Yeah. Right. And I just saw, you know, now we're talking topical. I just saw Bethany Frankel, the uh, reality TV woman. Um, uh, I don't know how else to describe her. Uh, she came out today and said that reality TV people should get on strike, too. They should form a union and get on strike, uh, which is a little strange. I, I'd like to see their union meetings, <laughs> which would be a good show, actually. Getting the reality TV people to form a union would be a great show. There you go. I, I would pitch that. I would pitch that. I would totally pitch that. We need a name. So I think you have a window to get to get these ideas through with the strike. Exactly. Um, 
Right. Okay. So uh, the other thing, one more point on Netflix I'd like to make, which is we talk about 1.5 million subscribers, but Netflix is doing something different than every other TV business in history, which is they're a global business. Uh, TV is inherently a local business, not local by city, but local by country. You don't have advertisers run in France and Germany or or broadcasters in France and Germany. They may be owned ultimately by the same conglomerate, yeah. but they're they're separate. And so 1.5 million might be you know, uh, um, half a million in the U.S., a little Canada, a little Korea, et cetera. It kind of is a additional difficulty and an additional upside if they get it right. Yeah, very much. Very much. Okay, let's talk about um, the ongoing fallout from the Google video debacle. So not much news here, except that uh, IAS and Double Verify sort of came half-heartedly to Google's defense um, and said that everything's okay, don't look here. Um, we verified it, uh, more or less. I'm really kind of cutting quarters on this whole story. <laughs> I'll, I'll... No, that's that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you: Are you following this? Is this part of TV? Do people consider this a TV issue or a digital issue? And it's more of a digital issue. But what's interesting is that YouTube is. There's been a whole debate over whether YouTube is TV or not, right? So, Google. I mean, it's it's a Google Nielsen in there. The gauge measure. Has YouTube in there? And for a while, they were counting YouTube TV as part of the YouTube numbers. And everyone thought, okay, well, when they take out YouTube TV, that YouTube streaming numbers are going to fall. Because it really was what was being watched in an actual TV set, not what people are watching on their phones as well. And they took it out, and it's still beating Netflix. And now it's like, okay, wow, a lot of people are watching YouTube on their television set. Do we start calling this TV? And it's a really tricky issue because, like, YouTube is everything, right? YouTube has movies. YouTube has, you know, that, like, you can rent. YouTube has its own fast service, a fairly robust fast service that, that, you know, being Google, they do nothing to publicize. You can't even find it on your phone. So with all that going on, you know, and then you also have, you know, and obviously you have the cat videos and the how-to videos, but, like, somewhere there's, like, you know, where's the line? And that's been a big question. Where do you draw the line between TV and digital video, and YouTube's been making a big argument like, no, we're TV. People watch it on a TV set, we're TV. And then this thing happens, and it's like, yeah, go away. You're like, yeah, you're like, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess it gives the, the TV people little fodder to, uh, yeah, you know, to cast aspersions to YouTube TV. But watching YouTube on TV, and we've, we've talked about this previously, I think, on the pod, it's great. Like, yeah, growing up, you're, you're just like fa favorite YouTube channel on, you know, on the, on, on the big screen, 4K. It's like awesome. Alan, this is a question that's bothered me for a while. Um, sure. Why is it that the same content on YouTube versus a streaming app, let's say NBC, ha it has a YouTube channel and they're publishing full episodes there? Why does it get such lower CPMs on YouTube? Just because I think, well, because you can skip the ads. I mean, that's a big part of it. And also because it's, so it's all, so that's a whole other ball, ball of wax. So the ad agencies, despite claiming that they are video agnostic, tend to have TV teams and programmatic teams. And they kind of don't really talk to each other or always speak the same language. I mean, there's a couple of people at the agencies who, who bridge it. But for the most part, they don't each get their own, you know, what the other is up to. And, and YouTube, depending on the brand of the agency, often gets shunted off into that digital video, into the social video thing. So it's like, you know, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter videos, whatever, Instagram videos. So it sort of gets that kind of, treatment as opposed to 
TV insights out in motion. I mean, Google's been making that argument. That's that's what I was talking about. Like, no, where you know you need to pay, give us higher CPMs because people actually watch this on the TV. Because there's a whole thing, you know, sight, sound, in motion, emotional impact, blah, blah, blah. So, right. I, I've always suspected that the pipes don't work as well either. Ha- having, you know, an ad tech no. background and having worked at Freewheel, it's pretty hard to serve your ads on YouTube in a efficient way, if, especially if they're programmatically bought. So let's talk about our favorite topic. The topic we, our, we have two favorite topics on this uh, podcast. One is a certain social media network we won't mention. The other one is um, the trade desk. And their march towards uh, inevitable greatness. The trade desk is getting adopted into the NASDAQ 100. Um, I don't know if it's a formal adoption or if you're just one of the top 100 companies, you just get there, uh, which is incredible. Their market cap hit, I think, $45 billion this week. And the question uh, everyone always has is, like, how do you justify that valuation? And is it all based on this assumption that they're going to be as dominant in the future of TV as they have been in programmatic display. Alan, what's your thought on the on their attempt to sort of wrangle TV? I mean, it's really it's interesting. They they tend to have a very hands off approach to the rest of the industry, right? Which is almost sort of the way you know, other companies have done this. Apple Apple gets accused of that a lot. Like if you go to any sort of trade show or you know ad tech kind of thing. They're not there. Like they don't, you know, no, nobody I know, like people know occasionally know somebody here or there at the trade desk, but it's not like this sort of social club the way all the other companies have and everybody knows each other and watches each other's back. At the same time, they've been really smart about how they position themselves and how they play it and their march forward. And, you know, and there is a tendency to, in the industry, to kind of want to just go like, okay, nobody's going to fire me if I use that. Well, at the same time, like, you know, how much is there sort of not playing nicely with others factor in? I don't, you know, I don't know. It's, you know, because I think that nothing's been, so here's the other part, Ari, which is big. Like, everything is still all up in the air. Like, contextual advertising is making a huge comeback right now. When I talk to people, you know, companies like Iris TV and even Curve and, you know, who are doing their, uh, is that another investment? Um, We're both investors in Iris. Uh, yeah, Field is, I love Field. Um, we've been friends for a long time. And another TV rep client, so to be to be fair about it. Um, but what's happening is brands, you know, are saying like, okay, if like privacy is just this wet hot mess, they're going to come after me now with IP addresses. If I target a football game, I'm probably going to hit the same audience that I would if I said, you know, sports fans, you know, 35 to 54 or whatever. So why, you know, why don't I just start doing that? And also, then you get into even the deeper piece, which is like, I have a funny ad. When I do it programmatically, I don't have a guarantee that it's not going to run against the funeral scene. So this way, I can use context with some targeting as well. But that's, you know, so does that sort of throw the trade desk off? I don't know. But that's, you know, that's coming up strong now. And, and the whole notion that you can identify what's on it and the sort of sight, sound, and motion. I'm trying to read into what you just said, which is, um, that the trade desk is very focused on bringing identity to TV, and you think if identity doesn't come to TV, that they're not going to be as strong at it. That's correct. So, what do you think of their effort to get identity? Uh, I, I we reported or we listened to the trade desk's big announcements uh, about two months ago, and one of the things they said was they expect fifty percent of all CTV impressions to have UID two within a year. 
I mean, you know, I go back to like, you know, the truth set guys, right? Like they've gone through a lot of these things and like, yeah, they're, they're based on outdated data. It's not, you know, a lot of it is off. And then there's all private, there's privacy issues. So it's funny with TV. If you ask people, and we've done this, they, you know, they're like, well, Google knows everything I do, right? They know, you know my finances, my porn habits, everything. So why would I care if LG knows that I watch Monday night football, you know, and the Tonight Show, like not a big deal. But at the same time, you know, once people start getting drilling into it, it's like, oh, well, they actually can trap where you, you know, like you saw this ad and then you went, you know, your credit card and stuff. Then it's like, whoa, like this, this could be kind of creepy. And so it, it gets tricky. And that's again, why we're thinking can, because contextual, we do it, One of the conclusions of our fast advertiser report was that contextual cures a, a world of hurt on streaming, right? Right. That, a lot of the problems that people have go away when you go there. Everything so what, from lack of transparency on out. You know, I, uh, not to disparage Iris by any means, but like we, we've been buying video ads programmatically for 15 years now, and there's still virtually no contextual data on those bid requests. So what, Yeah, I mean, that's messed up. But <laughs> Eric, uh, any thoughts on the trade desk, contextual TV, or, or uh, anything we've been talking about? Two things. So amazing to have an ad tech company in the NASDAQ 100. Hopefully it's just the first ad exchanger. And I'm pretty sure this is James Hercher because he's just like a wizard at this stuff. At this stuff noted that um, they got there through uh, Activision being removed because the Microsoft uh, acquisition was proved. Um, and uh, this is uh, you know, sort of yet another example roundabout of Microsoft um, providing a, a little bit of tailwind to Jeff Green because they bought his first company at ECN. So ad tech history for you there. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I've been thinking about uh, last week's episode with Dave Clark and how he just kept talking about with CTV, it is such a supplier driven and supply side controlled market. So, you know, I'm like, you know, super bullish and enthusiastic on, on trade desk, but as it relates to CTV, I do think there are some differences that um, they're going to need to address to ultimately have the the domination that, you know, folks are expecting and, and betting given given the valuation yeah dave made a good point about that um so uh one last point i was talking about this fact i was at alfred drake's with some former double click executives back in the day double click executives uh, very senior people who ran the company and the question came up was like could double click have been a 45 billion dollar company you know if things had turned out differently and my answer to that was um we used to charge one or two cents for ad serving and there was a transition where suddenly you could make 10 to 20% of the media dollars on those same impressions. You know, yeah, <laughs> you do the math. And, you know, if you're double click and you're absolutely dominant on the publisher and the advertiser side, and you start getting 10% of media on every one of those transactions, 45 billion seems very feasible given how programmatic group. Uh, last topic before we go Google Genesis. Uh, so, Google has been showing a product to publishers, to uh, journalists, uh, journalist entities, that can write articles. And I assume from the reaction, which has generally been a freak out, that it writes the articles really well, like better than ChatGPT, uh, really well, uh, would be my guess. So um, it's kind of audacious of them to show this to journalists. I mean, what were they expecting to the reaction to be? Um, Eric, what do you know about this topic? I know, so it's a topic that I've been following. There's a couple of companies that are working on things like this. Uh, one of the things that if you're a journalist, 
you may be concerned about or you may find, you know, to be sort of like massively helpful for for your job is the speed at which these things can not only confirm facts, depending on obviously the, the data set that they're being trained on, but write a full article and then be potentially trained on the style guides, the tone, the voice of a given publisher. Like you are, I think, very close to articles being written by AI in the tone of the New York Times versus the tone of the Washington Post. I'm sure Google has that capability and and was showing it um, in in these demos that allegedly allegedly were happening. Um, I think at minimum, this is going to be it's you know pitched as like sort of a helpmate. I think any journalist has to take advantage of this stuff. Like if you've played around with these tools, they're so helpful and they just you know take so much heavy lifting out of a out of a given role. And I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that we start to see full AI pieces being posted that can be posted by AI, right? Not necessarily hard hitting, deeply uh, reported uh, news, but this thing is coming really, really fast. Everybody should read this article. It was in the New York Times. Absolutely. So what's it called? Google Genesis. Alan, when will the first fully AI written TV episode air? Um. Probably not too far away. So the thing with TV is it, it will be able to do two things fairly quickly. One is going to be able to write the scripts for things like House Hunters, where like it's just, you know, paint by numbers. It's like, okay, now we're in the house and this house has three bedrooms. And somebody, I think it might have been Rich Greenfield, did sort of a, a quick little, you know, personal study of how much original like, you know, film there was on a half hour episode of House Hunters. And it's like at nine minutes because it's like, Here's what we're going to see before you know, when we come back from the commercial. Now here's what we just saw. Yeah. And it becomes even more profitable. Yes. Think about it. Yeah. It becomes even more profitable. Uh, you're already seeing AI scripts. All, think about all of the budgets that go to TikTok and YouTube yeah. and just all of these like, you know, sort of like um, transcript type of vid videos that you might watch. Like all that stuff is AI. It's already happening. And ads are being run against it. It's like, it, it's already a thing. Yeah. And then you also have things, you know, sort of the very kind of like Hallmark Christmas movies or things like that, where one might not write the whole movie, but it can do treatments, you know, because it's just sort of a very easy genre thing. And it yeah. can do that. Yeah, you're right, Eric. Because there's all, you know, think of all those sort of web pages that show up really high in Google that were clearly written by somebody whose first language is not English. And like, AI is just going to do a better job of that. And a lot of those have videos. And there's, you know, how many things have you seen of like how to make an AI video for Instagram from your, your, your ideas? And, you know, it, it's getting there. Okay. Last question. Alan, uh, Barbie or Oppenheimer? That's a tough one because uh, probably, I mean, my, I want us Oppenheimer. But when my daughter was four, we watched every other Barbie movie. There's, there's a whole series of them forever, you know, like about a hundred times each. Um, Barbie and the 12 dancing princesses and whatever. So <laughs> may just be fun to see them, but I would, I probably would go for Oppenheimer first. Eric, Barbie or Oppenheimer? I haven't been paying much attention to either of them. So I'd like to watch both of them. I'm sure they're both right. great. I'm big on the Oppenheimer side, but uh, we're talking about art that can't be done by AI. Oppenheimer has no CGI at all. Oh, good for them. The largest explosion in Hollywood history. All right. On that topic, let's call it. Alan, thank you. This has been a great conversation for yeah, a TV episode.
Yeah, learn to talk. Thank you, Alan. Yes, thank you guys both. Take care. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.